myself and uh, some of, of my friends went to that university where students had been demonstrating for two or three days. You know, the first shot was fired by the sniper uh, and then uh, one student uh, killed right in front of, uh, of me. And then the, the second and the third, there were at least, I think, uh, four students were killed that day. It's the 11th episode of Global. As some of you may already know from listening to the Tunisia episode, uh, we recently lost Stacy Brown, who was one of our podcast hosts. She has moved on to greener pastures in a world known as grad school. Um, <laughs> but it's okay because we've got Chessie, um, Francesca Gordzunian. She's been with IRI for a year and a half. She actually goes by Chessie Gordzunian, and she has a master's degree from the Elliott School at George Washington University. Hi, Sinclair. Hi. <laughs> Chessie is half French, half Armenian, and all American, because we are a nation of immigrants. <laughs> right? And uh, anyways, <laughs> we previously worked together on Tunisia, so we... Uh, Before you ditched us for Jordan. It's okay. We're still friends. Uh, I hope. Ah. <laughs> and so um, I think you're going to enjoy her intelligence and her bubbly personality. Oh, man. Too many compliments. I'm uncomfortable. You can handle it. <laughs> Jesse, tell us for any new listeners what we're all about here. Thank you, Sinclair. I'm really excited to be a part of the IRI Global team here, where each month we produce a podcast featuring one country per episode, where we deliver an on-the-ground look at our rapidly changing world. And today, for episode 11, we're going to be focusing on the country of Indonesia. As the rookie, I I think you should deliver the fast tracks for us. Oh, is this my hazing? Yep. So tell us what we need to know about Indonesia. Well, lucky for you, I was so nervous about recording this first episode that I learned everything there is to know about Indonesia. You ready for this? Hit me with it. All right. So for those who listened to last month's episode on Venezuela, you already know this one. But Indonesia is actually the fourth largest country in the world with over 260 million inhabitants, making it the largest Muslim majority country in the world and the third largest democracy after the United States and India. It's also an archipelago of over 18,000 islands. Can you imagine that? It stretches over four time zones from Aceh near Singapore and Malaysia all the way to the island of Papua. Speaking of islands, its main islands include Java, Sumatra, Kalimantan, Sulawesi, and Papua, and the one that most people have heard of, Bali. Sorry, listeners, Bali is not a country. Well, I've heard of Java and coffee. Is that a thing? Actually, yes. Java and Sumatra actually are big exporters of coffee. If you go upstairs to our Keurig machine, you will find a little pot with Sumatra on it. And we have only the best coffee. Speaking of Java, it's the most populous island of of Indonesia and by itself would be the 10th largest country in the world. Just on its own. Wow. Just under the population of Russia and about 10 million more people than the total population of Mexico. That's huge. Also, if you listen to Global's fourth episode on Timor-Leste, we talked about their independence movement from Indonesia and how Indonesia and Timor-Leste share the island of Timor. Just like Haiti, right? In Dominican Republic, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Over 85% of Indonesians identify as Sunni Muslims, but the state itself recognizes six official religions, including Islam, Protestantism, Catholicism, Hinduism, Buddhism, and Confucianism. Indonesia's official language is actually Bahasa Indonesia, which literally means language Indonesia. How cool is that? Makes it simple for remembering different languages, right? Mm-hmm. 
but there are over 700 living languages spoken throughout the country itself. I mean, it sounds like Indonesia could really make a claim that they're the most diverse country in the world. Oh, absolutely. Indonesia is a constitutional republic, and it's led by President Joko Widodo, or more commonly known as Jokowi. Well, now that you've given us our vegetables in the form of fast facts, I want to get some treats in the form of fun facts. All right, check these ones out. Indonesia is home to over 150 volcanoes and is at the center of the Pacific Ring of Fire. Cue the Johnny Cash song. I fell into a burning ring of fire. You know, what I've heard from people who visited Indonesia is that its catchphrase should be everything's better with a volcano in the background (laughs) because it's like, boom, you're on the beach, volcano in the background. (laughs) That's awesome. You're going fishing, boom, volcano in the background. Grocery shopping, boom, volcano. Yeah. Speaking of volcanoes, in 1815, there was an eruption on the island of Sambawa, and that eruption remains to this day the largest volcanic activity observed in recorded history. The ash from the eruption actually lowered temperatures all over the globe and created what was known as the year without a summer in 1816. In in other words, a year of always winter. (laughs) Sinclair, in-house Game of Thrones nerd. You're welcome. Oh, also, Indonesia is the only place in the world where you can find Komodo dragons. And the last fun fact for you, because, you know, I'm French and all, is that every year Indonesia exports 3,000 tons of frog legs to France. God, that's a lot of frog legs. That is a lot of frog legs. I don't even like frog legs. How many frog legs go into one ton, let alone 3,000? Yeah. And then do you think that they actually ship them, like, whole as Uh, frogs? (laughs) Gross. Or are they just a bunch of legs, like, on a ship? (laughs) Okay, I'm cutting you off. You're done. <laughs> As usual, we've got a great lineup of guests. Uh, first, we have Philip Vermonte, the executive director of the Center for Strategic and International Studies, or if you're based in D.C., you might know them better as CSIS. He's the executive director in Indonesia for that company and the founder of JakartaBeat.net. Hello. Selamat siang. And then we have Professor Edward Espinal of the Australian National University. He's the author of multiple books on Indonesia, including Opposing Suharto, Compromise, Resistance, and Regime Change in Indonesia, as well as Islam and Nation, Separatist Rebellion in Aceh, Indonesia. Thanks for having me on this podcast. Lastly, we have IRI's own Rhonda Mays. Uh, Rhonda is the deputy director of the Asia Division here at IRI. Uh, She has a master's degree from the University of Wisconsin's Center for Southeast Asian Studies, and she lived in Indonesia previously. Thanks for having me, guys. I'm always happy to have an opportunity to talk about my favorite country in Southeast Asia and second home, Indonesia. Sounds like we have a killer lineup. Let's get started. Professor Aspinall, could you please summarize for us the uh, decades leading up to Indonesian independence? Right, I think with the nationalist movements would be a good place to start. So really the first stirrings of Indonesian nationalism really began in the first decades of the 20th century. So the Dutch had had a presence in parts of Indonesia, at least for around a couple of hundred years before that. Indonesia itself is actually a rather a new concept. The very idea of Indonesia, or the very word Indonesia, hadn't even been invented before about the mid-19th uh, century. What we had before the appearance of the Dutch uh, was a series of indigenous states or state-like society or sometimes stateless societies in parts of Indonesia in the uplands or in the interior of some of the big islands. And it was really the presence of the Dutch that brought the uh, Indonesian archipelago uh, together into one um, uh, entity. And the idea of Indonesian nationalism only really began to get started in the 1920s. The critical leader here really, who then later became Indonesia's first president, uh, was Sukarno. 
Uh, he and his colleagues formed the Indonesian National Indonesian National Party in the in the 1920s. And so, how did Indonesia eventually gain its independence? Right. So, the critical juncture which allowed Indonesia to become independent was the Second World War. Basically, uh, Japanese occupation occurred in 1942. The Dutch colonial empire crumbled in the face of the advance of Japanese forces. So, when the Japanese were defeated in 1945, this was really the opportunity for the Indonesian independ- uh, Indonesian nationalists to then declare. Uh, independence. There was a period then for several years during which the Dutch attempted to uh, re-enter their former colonial possessions Uh, and in fact they conquered uh, much of, or reconquered I should say, much of Indonesian territory but with support from countries like the United States in the newly formed uh, United Nations there was eventually a series of negotiations that led to the transfer of sovereignty to the new Indonesian Republic in 1949. So, could you tell us a little bit more about Sukarno's period as ruler of Indonesia? Yeah, so for the next decade and a half, really, through the 1950s uh, and then into the mid-1960s, this was really a period of great instability and turbulence within Indonesia. So, Indonesia had attained its independence from the Dutch, but uh, this was a period of mass politics. So the period of the revolution had set in train, in train all sorts of political movements who had very different visions for what they wanted Indonesia to look look like. Certainly the nationalist strain, which was the main supporter of Sukarno, was still very strong. But we also had major political parties based in the Islamic community. And also very importantly, we saw the rapid emergence of a mass-based a communist movement in Indonesia as well. So such that by the early 1960s, Indonesia had the third largest communist party in the world after those of China and the Soviet Union. During the first uh, years of the 1950s, Indonesia had a parliamentary democracy, but it was a very unstable period of, multi- of multi-party, uh, multi-party rule. So there was a period in which it seemed as if Indonesia was potentially going to fly apart. And at the same time, there was this great fear amongst uh, some of the establishment forces in Indonesia that uh, Indonesia was facing the rise, uh, sort of inexorable rise of a communist movement. In the late 1950s, in- President Sukarno intervened. He de- he suspended or dissolved, or dissolved, I should say, the democratic constitution that Indonesia had adopted. He dissolved the constituent assembly that was in the process of drafting a new constitution. So by the mid-1960s, Indonesia was increasingly polarised. You had the rapid growth of this massive communist movement on the left and uh, the opponents of the this emerging communist uh, movement were really Uh, consolidating themselves around the army, uh, which was growing increasingly powerful uh, for various reasons. And you had President Sukarno, who was increasingly himself adopting a left-wing posture, especially in international affairs, uh, sort of maintaining this precarious balancing act. And that leads us to the coup, correct? So during that period of um, political polarisation I was talking about before, you had this very mysterious event take place on the evening of the 30th of September 1965, when a group of mostly sort of junior or middle-ranking officers and their followers in the in the various wings of the military, various various services of the military, kidnapped and killed a number of senior army uh, officers. Now, these uh, troops who carried out the coup. 
uh, said they were acting to forestall what they what they uh, said was a planned right wing coup by the army against Sukarno. Many of the events about what happened uh, that night remain murky, but it does seem that there was at least some involvement in this so called counter coup by leading elements of the Indonesian Communist Party. What's really clear is that immediately after this event, uh, the army consolidated itself and fought back under the leadership of General Suharto, who took advantage of this event to really launch this massive program of repression of the Indonesian Communist Party and its uh, associated mass organisations. In the months that followed, in the, fi- in the final months of 1965 and then stretching through into 1966, the army organised a program of mass killing of supporters of this uh, party. We don't know how many people were killed and we'll probably never know. Estimates range half a million, uh, perhaps one million people were killed. Um, Participating in the killings were units of the army itself, but also many civilian militias or civilian organisations, especially various civilians associated with some of the large Muslim organisations in in Indonesia. Can I just say that I I just found it astonishing that this happened and you know, maybe I'm ignorant, but I'd never heard of it. <laughs> and, you know, I heard about the Cultural Revolution in China and, you know, other sorts of uh, mass killings in other countries. But it's astonishing to me that so many people were killed um, in this time period. It really is remarkable. I mean, there's, there are very few uh, firsthand accounts of what happened. There are some historians now trying to reconstruct some of the events, get a sense of the scale of the killings. There was some reporting in the Western media uh, at that time. And of course, in the context of the Cold War, these killings or the, at least the regime change were portrayed as um, very good news for Western countries at a period when, of course, we saw the advance uh, of communism in Indochina, uh, fears, the domino theory and so on, these fears about uh, Southeast Asia uh, falling to communist control. Uh, suddenly we saw this very violent but extremely effective rollback of the left in, in Indonesia. And you're right, the scale of the killing was, is really quite remarkable and it tra- really traumatised entire uh, communities. So, Rhonda, in regards to the communist purges, how does a traumatic series of events like that affect the population today and the population psyche. Mm-hmm. This is a really interesting aspect of, of Indonesian culture. And, you know, it feels 60, 1965 to 67, that feels like a long time ago in some ways to us. But the country never really has dealt with those issues. For So under, the, under Suharto's rule, under the New Order, there was one national myth about what happened on... September 30th, 1965. There's one explanation. There's a propaganda movie that they made that showed on TV every single year on September 30th to like teach the population about what the, you know, the official narrative about what happened there. I think that this, this has persisted throughout the entire New Order. And even after, you know, in the the two decades since Indonesia's transition to democracy, this is still an intensely uh, sensitive subject for the country, such that even you know last week or in the past several weeks, they've sort of shut down screenings of various documentary films that sort of explain what really happened um, during that time. And the military issued an order to d- not only disrupt screenings of this Joshua Oppenheimer film um, that is about that that time period, but also to set up screenings of this sort of propaganda film that was made under the new order. So 
Professor Aspinall, what happened next? We saw the consolidation of what was called the New Order regime uh, under his leadership. And as it emerged uh, in the late 1960s and then early 1970s, several features of this regime really became its defining characteristics. One was that the military was really the leading element within this regime. A second feature was that this was really also a very bureaucratic entity uh, that the, as well as the military, the, the New Order regime really relied upon the civilian bureaucracy. But the other sort of corollary of all of that was that this was a regime that exercised uh, very authoritarian, top-down top uh, control over civilian politics. Uh, Dr. Vermonte, so then how did Indonesia come back to democracy? The seeds for his fall actually were uh, created by himself, that is, because the new order government under Suharto, you know, well, we have to credit uh, the Suharto government as well, right? They were able to bring about economic growth uh, for Indonesia, creating a new middle class that includes these students whose parents benefited from the economic development that occurred throughout the Suharto period. Naturally, middle class is one of that force within the society that are more critical demanding more political space, more freedom, that I think uh, then was crystallized in the 90s. So in a way, Suharto's economic development ironically also created a group within the society that become critical of him. You know, we would expect that Suharto would survive uh, longer at that time, uh, but then uh, he just uh, resigned from the presidency uh, in May 1998. You know. So did Suharto's resignation come as a surprise? It came as a surprise because uh, I think most of the people thought that he would fight back, you know, but he did not. That also created confusion. Suharto was resigning from the presidency, but his bureaucracy uh, remained intact. Pro-democracy movement then after the fall of Suharto had to also deal with this you know, former supporters of Suharto who tried to survive as well. Were you actually in Jakarta during these student protests? I was I was in Jakarta, but I already uh, graduated from university. That was my first year working. So in the 90s, I think uh, one particular uh, policy that also brought uh, Suharto down that crystallized the uh, protests was his decision in 1994 to ban three major uh, publications, a newspaper and magazine in Indonesia. You know, uh, newspaper and magazines were the main food for thought for the middle class. So I think from that point onward, you know, this middle class felt that uh, this is not this is no longer tolerable right it's it's, it's critical it's galvanized the the pro democracy movement at, uh, at the time fresh from the university i worked for an advertising agency they were including myself they were the first to be hit by this financial crisis right and then the uh, of course uh, our currency was uh, evaluated at the time and then subsequently it hit the lower uh, class as well. How bad was the inflation? In uh, 1996, $1 equals 2,500 uh, rupiah. But one year later, during the financial crisis, $1 equals 17,000 rupiah. So you could imagine how much prices are rising almost five times, uh, the price almost five times higher. So milk 
I remember at the time uh, I just had uh, my first son uh, born in 1998, right? The price of the milk suddenly, uh, you know, soared like three, four times. So it it become uh, it it really hurt. <clears throat> uh, I think the majority of the population of of, of Indonesia, and uh, because of the price, of course, then the basic legitimacy of the new order government. That is, they were authoritarian, but they were able to bring economic development. Suddenly, it's gone. So that's why it just suddenly the whole structure of the new order government was collapsed. Okay, so Suharto resigns. What happens next? So what happened was that uh, Suharto, when Suharto resigned, he handed power to his vice president, uh, who was a civilian technocrat called B.J. Habibi. He was a German-trained engineer, but had been, uh, he was been very close to Suharto and been trusted by Suharto over preceding decades to oversee Indonesia's transformation or hoped for trans- transformation into a high-tech uh, economy. Habibi himself could see that he'd come to power on in circumstances of acute political crisis. Students were still demonstrating, uh, and in fact, in many ways, the student protest movement was uh, accelerating and demanding what they called reformasi total, or total reform of Indonesia's political system. And Habibi made the wise choice that rather than to try to repress the changes that were and, and demands for change that were suddenly erupting throughout Indonesia, that he would try to ride the tiger of reform. Uh, and he rapidly began to dismantle many of the major political controls that had been erected during the period of Suharto's uh, rule. So controls on the media, controls on the formation of labour uh, organisations, trade unions and other uh, sorts of organisations were immediately dismantled. He released large numbers of political prisoners. He implemented a process of decentralisation. One of the problems of the Suharto period was he had uh, very centralised rule and above all he uh, deregulated the political party system and allowed the free formation of political parties and he announced that uh, free and fair elections would be held to determine uh, the future of the country. Dr. Vermonte, were people satisfied with the changes? People uh, were not satisfied because they thought the vice president was still part of the Suharto government. So there was a political crisis in 1999 because the supporters of President Habibi, of course, uh, were not satisfied. Those who were against uh, President Habibi continued to pressure for a totally a new replacement of the new order government. In 1998, they were clashed with the student. As you know, I think uh, three or four students was, uh, were killed, uh, shot dead by, by the military. And in 1999, that was happened again uh, in front of another university, uh, Atmajaya University. I, I happened to be there, you know, by accident. Myself and uh, some of, of my friends went to that university where students had been demonstrating for two or three days. So when we arrived there, uh, you know, the first shot was fired by the sniper uh, and then uh, one student uh, killed right in front of, uh, of me. And then the, the second and the third, there were at least, I think, uh, four students were killed that day. And then I felt the frustration of the students 
you know, uh, they were not able to fight back, of course, because what they are fighting was the military with all the <coughs> the authority to use uh, violence and so on and so forth. But that <coughs> gave uh, me the the feeling of how frustrated the young people of Indonesia at the time. Um, so Rhonda, how did the first elections go? Well, so they were pretty complicated. So um, in the Indonesia's old system, um, there weren't direct elections for the president. So the they basically only had like parliamentary elections and then this joint gathering of the of the house basically um, would then elect the president. And so there was actually quite a lot of controversy because there was overwhelming support for um, the party of Megawati Sukarno Putri. She was sort of like the leader of the democratic opposition throughout. She was opposed to Suharto and opposed to the military. And her party, PDIP, um, won significantly in those parliamentary elections. But then when it got into electing the president, a lot of the pro-democracy forces expected that Mega would be the president because they had elected her party. She sort of had the majority. But because of a lot of the like horse trading that went on within the parliament, they actually elected um, Abdurrahman Wahid or Gustor as the president. So a lot of people were really frustrated with that outcome and sort of it was an early damper, I would say, on like expectations of democracy in the country. So how did the international community respond to the outcome of these elections? Um, I think, you know, it was kind of complicated the entire transition period. I mean, obviously, most people were happy to see um, this move away from dictatorship. Um, when the country opened, a number of international organizations, including IRI, started working there very soon after the transition. So IRI started working there in 1998, um, and that work has taken on a number of different sort of aspects over the years. But a, a lot of it has been working at the provincial level and sort of supporting democracy the growth of parties, the involvement of women in those parties, the collaboration between different sectors on local governance um, throughout the years. Um, we've always sort of taken the, the provincial approach because if you look at Indonesia, it's sort of like this massive archipelago and it's sort of a very unlikely nation state. And so like you can change things at, at the national level in the center, but a lot of times don't those don't filter out very well to the provinces. So working at the provincial level is really important. So Professor Aspinall, what happened next? Indonesia went from this period then of 32 years of stable and unchanging authoritarian rule to this period of extremely compressed uh, change when I, I'm forgetting the exact figures now, but I think we had Indonesia had some four presidents within the space of, let me think, six years. Oh, wow. Indonesia since that time has had a pretty stable uh, system of democracy. Uh, in 2014, Indonesia's most uh, recent president was elected through direct presidential elections. Uh, his name is Joko Widodo or Jokowi. Um, he's an interesting character in many ways because uh, unlike uh, most of the preceding or all of the preceding presidents of the new democratic period, Jokowi is really a political product 
of the post-Reformati era. He was elected as a mayor in a in a town in central Java called Solo and uh, won a reputation as a successful reforming mayor who was able to deliver better public services. Then he was elected as the governor of Jakarta and achieved popularity for much the same reason there, but also for developing a sort of populist, uh, sort of meet the, meet the people, close to the people, sort of personal style of politics. And it was on the back of that personal pol- uh, political popularity cultivated through the media that he was elected uh, as president in 2014. Talk about a rise to power. <laughs> Dr. Vermonte, what type of government does Indonesia have? Indonesia is a, is a republic. We adopt the uh, presidential system which means uh, uh, the buck stop at the president. And then we also have a multi-party system. So unlike in the U.S., uh, has only uh, two major parties. But in Indonesia, currently we have uh, 10 political parties in the parliament. So you, you can imagine with two parties in the U.S., uh, political situation already confusing. And then the, now we have 10 parties in Indonesia. Uh, we can imagine how confusing is that and how noisy our democracy is. Of course, I'm, as I mentioned uh, earlier, uh, now we have the regional autonomy. It's not a federal system in which you know state can really have their own program, uh, execute their own program, generating tax and so on and so forth, local tax and so on, and have their own police uh, in Indonesia. Decentralization uh, means that in certain areas, uh, powers are really in the hands of local government, down below the provincial level, uh, where this decentralization is uh, dependent upon. That is at the regency and or city level. So, Professor Aspinall, what would you say are the key political issues facing Indonesia today? So, one which is a really critical problem is the problem of corruption, uh, that Indonesia made the transition to democracy with a deeply entrenched pattern of collusion between business and political interests, pretty untouched. So that's a really big problem uh, for Indonesia and it infects basically every institution, including critical institutions of law enforcement, such as the courts and the police. A second problem that Indonesia faces is of rising inequality. Uh, There is a sense amongst many Indonesians that the wealth gap between rich and poor uh, is growing, and indeed there's a lot of data now to, to back this up. And the third really big political issue uh, concerns the place of Islam in the political system. So in a context where we see discontent generated by issues such as corruption and inequality, uh, one of the major forces that seeks to capitalise on that discontent uh, is our various Islamist organisations. Now, this competition between Islamists and um uh, secular nationalists has been a feature of Indonesian political life back, right back to the 1950s and even earlier, right back to the dawning of Indonesian nationalism in the early decades of the 20th century. And it's all we always need to be careful about exaggerating the threat uh, that Islamists pose to Indonesia's uh, democratic order. But it certainly is true uh, that the, these uh, that Islamist groups do still represent one major Uh, potential spoiler uh, within Indonesian democracy, and not only a a threat to Indonesian democracy as a whole, but um, also uh, they have exercised significant influence in 
pushing Indonesia in a more illiberal direction in certain respects. Yeah, that actually leads into something that I wanted to ask about because, um, it, like you said, there's this history in Indonesia since it's been a secular state for so long um, of there being radical Muslim forces who don't like the fact that it's a secular state and trying to take over, but um, not being very successful. But now there seems to be more of a, a rising trend of radicalism. Um, and I read actually recently that uh, I was surprised to learn that 500 Indonesians are said to have joined the Islamic State, which is one of the highest numbers in the world. So could you tell us about, is there a rising tide of radicalism in Indonesia? Indonesia has this way of dealing with it. And it's it's kind of interesting how this has been like, how this has evolved throughout the years. So the one of the early one of the nationalist independence leaders, Sukarno, who also became the first president, he, he laid out this these five principles, or the Panchasila, that are like the five sort of principles that define what Indonesia as a nation is. Um, and, and one of them is a belief in one God. This influence has always been there, and, you know, the state has used Panchasila as a way to sort of like assert that Indonesia is a spiritual state without being an Islamic state. And that's sort of always been the compromise. And we're seeing this now um, with this increase of attention again. It's sort of, as I said, sort of ebbs and flows. And we're in sort of one of the flows of increasing Islamic awareness or sort of radical awareness in the country. And we see the Indonesian state, again, using Panchasila and saying like, you must believe in Panchasila. This is what defines the Indonesian nation. And if you don't believe in Panchasila, i.e. if you are a radical group like Hizbat Tahrir or Islamic State that's looking to establish a caliphate, then you are not part of the Indonesian nation and we can act against you basically to eradicate you, to protect the nation state essentially is, is how they frame it. Things were quiet for several years and then Islamic State sort of like popped on the scene and this has inspired a new mode of operations essentially for radical violent extremist groups in Indonesia. And so it's much more, there are networks, there are connections, but there's also because of the way Islamic State inspired attacks go. There's also this like individual character to it. So we saw in May of this year, there was an attack on the police in Jakarta. Someone attacked with like a knife. They went after them. You know, it was able to be contained because it was an individual. Within the next month after that attack, there were at least four or five copycat attacks in various places across the archipelago because people saw and thought like, okay, I can also take my machete down to the police station and, you know, attack them and claim that it's part of, you know, the Islamic State. Simultaneous to that and sort of in conjunction with that, there is a growing political bent to Islam. And that is more that political, powerful political actors are increasingly taking Islam and sort of championing these sort of more radical ideas about Islam being involved in the state and, you know, these more radical actors um, championing them for their own political gain, essentially. So they're they're taking, you know, um, FPI, the Islamic Defenders Front, and, you know, Hizbat Tahrir, some of these very radical groups, and they're, they know that they have some following. And in Indonesia, sort of espousing more Islamic values is never going to be, like, detrimental to you politically. And the worrying thing that has happened before with, like, the creation of FPI, sometimes those forces, when they're trying to, when people are trying to use them in that way, they sort of get out of control. And so, like, 
they move past the point where they can still be controlled by the political actor and they sort of take on a life of their own. And I think that's what we're seeing. Professor Aspinall, who will President Joko Widodo face in the next elections? The most likely contender uh, for the presidency that he will face in Indonesia's upcoming presidential elections in 2019 is the man who ran against him and lost pretty narrowly uh, in 2014. Interestingly, uh, this man, Prabowo Subianto, is really a major figure from the late New Order period. Uh, he was a key player in the events that led to the downfall uh, of the of, of the Suharto government in 1998, and he was um, uh, expelled from the military uh, in connection with human rights abuses that took place at that time, and has been. Uh, attempting a political comeback and a political rehabilitation uh, ever since. So he's the candidate. If we're looking for a uh, potential rollback of Indonesian democracy, uh, certainly my opinion is that a successful presidential campaign by him could represent a really dramatic turning point in Indonesia's modern history because he is someone who really expresses uh, a, a sort of yearning among some parts of the population for the certainties, the stability, or the, the well, let's say the stability um, and the sort of remembered period of economic growth of the Suharto uh, period. He's expressed great scepticism about certain elements of Indonesia's uh, contemporary democracy. Uh, repeatedly stresses that Indonesia needs uh, much more. Uh, much stronger and authoritative leadership. The bigger point here is that Indonesian democracy, although it's been one of the great success stories of democratisation of the last two decades, uh, that Indonesian democracy is still still, uh, not out of the danger zone, that uh, we could still see uh, major reversals uh, in democracy in Indonesia, despite the great progress that has been made over the last couple of decades. So, Rhonda, that actually dovetails nicely into the next question that I had for you, which is about these elections that are coming up. Can you talk to us a bit more about them and what we can expect? So 2019 will be um, the first simultaneous elections in the country's history. So question for our listeners, what do you mean when you say simultaneous? So they will be electing um, the parliamentary representatives and the president and several local positions across the entire country all at once. So previously they had used a staggered election system just because you can imagine that administering elections in 33 or four provinces across 17 and a half thousand islands is sort of an insane (laughs) undertaking. That sounds very daunting. Yeah, so they're now gonna try to do this all at once because sort of the cost of administering them in the staggered way is, is prohibitive or is just sort of like unwieldy. Um, So 2019, they will be all together. And the Election Commission, the KPU, is pretty competent. They've done a really good job um, considering what they're dealing with. They've done a a fairly good job administering all of these previous elections. And so I think there's some concern over preparedness for these elections. And they did just pass a new elections law in the parliament that has several aspects to it that are a little concerning and one of them is that um this election watch board bawaslu is what it's called in indonesian that they are sort of responsible for training party agent observers across the entire archipelago and all of the political parties which is sort of a massive undertaking for for them especially since they don't have a lot of experience doing that but in general the kpu bawaslu they're they're 
fairly well prepared for these, but I think there's just some concern because it's obviously a massive, massive undertaking. The more concerning thing about both the the 2018 gubernatorial elections, which will happen in 17 provinces next June 2018, and the 2019 elections is the way that political Islam is sort of being drawn into the electoral process and is being used to essentially like undermine free competition in these elections. And so it's easy to use that as a target against candidates. And we're going to see this um, in 2018. We're going to see this in the West Java elections, um, the gubernatorial elections in West Java. It's a really worrying contest that we're seeing. And it's going to have sort it's going to be a sort of bellwether, I think, for what we're going to see in 2019 when we have these nationwide simultaneous elections and the way that this political radicalism is going to sort of feed into those elections. Hanya bilik bambu Tempat tinggal kita Tanpa hiasan Tanpa lukisan So this is a question that we ask in every podcast to sort of end on a lighter note. Um, so if uh, your Earth was going to shoot off an international time capsule in space... And we had to put one physical object in it per country mm-hmm. to represent that country to the aliens or whoever would find it. What would we put in? What would Indonesians put in for Indonesia? Oh, gosh. I mean, I think they would put in, like, batik or something because they're so proud of, like, these or wayang. What is it? Sorry. Uh, batik is, is, like, a traditional Indonesian craft. And, you know, Indonesia and Malaysia fight over where it actually came from. But it's, it's popular in lots of places. But Indonesia likes to claim it. Um, it's basically like a technique of dyeing fabric where you hand draw designs using wax and then you dye it and then you strip the wax off and do sort of like the next section of it essentially and dye it in a different color and strip the wax. So it's sort of this like repetitive wax drawing dyeing process that they use on fabric, but it's very considered very traditional Indonesian stuff. And I think the Indonesians are proud to be known for this sort of internationally. So I'm sure that they would probably choose something like that. I think we should send a copy of the original speech outlining Panchasila because Panchasila has become sort of the defining thing of Indonesia that they cling to in all aspects. And so I think that if we were looking for something, and granted, the aliens or whoever may not be able to read (laughs) Indonesian to know what it says, but I think that's the most like quintessential Indonesian thing. That's beautiful. Turun lagi Semesta bersuka dan menari Bintang jatuh lagi Okay, Sinclair, we heard a lot of really interesting things today. But if our listeners were to take away three things, what would they be? So the first thing for me is that in Indonesia we're seeing this rising threat of violent extremism, which is happening all over the world, but in Indonesia in particular, it has this great tradition of tolerance and it's this violent extremism is threatening that no, legacy. I totally agree with that. And speaking of violent extremism, I would also say for the second point, I would say that Indonesia's growing radicalism is corrupting its politics and its political rhetoric. Yep, yeah, and that's gonna be really important for the next elections which are coming up in 2019. And for me, that's the third takeaway, is that um, these elections are going to be the biggest in Indonesia's history, as they're the first simultaneous parliamentary and presidential elections. And since Indonesia is the third largest democracy 
in the world, um, these elections could be really important for the future of Indonesia's democracy. Absolutely. All eyes on Indonesia in April 2019. So that's all for us today. But if you like what you heard, please leave us a review or a comment on iTunes. If there's a country that you want us to do an episode about, you can leave us a comment on iTunes or email us at podcast at iri.org. I'm personally pulling for Armenia. Semesta berpali Semesta berpali Menarikan kesunyian abadi Satu yang semua Thank you to Ed Aspinall of the Australian National University. If you want to learn more about Indonesia, I highly recommend that you check out his writings on newmandala.org. Yeah, he writes a bunch of analytical pieces that are really good. And next, a big thank you to Phillips Vermonte from CSIS Indonesia. You can follow their work on Twitter at CSIS Indonesia. And lastly, a big thank you to Ron Demays, IRI's in-house Indonesia expert who has lived in the country and also speaks the language fluently. Uh, lesser known fact, uh, Rhonda is also known for having one of the best laughs at IRI in the DC office. <laughs> Very true. And you can follow Rhonda Mays on Twitter at Rhonda Mays B. Well, it's my personal favorite part of the episode where we get to hint at the next one, Chessie, wow. do you want to do the honors? Yes. So next month's country is actually home to the last jungle in Europe. Wow, that's kind of hard to imagine a, a, a European country with a jungle. So right? I have to substitute George of the Jungle in a loincloth in my mind with like a guy in a kilt. <laughs> Sinclair, this is not that kind of podcast. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs>